Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode contains discussion of sexual violence that may be upsetting to some listeners and may not be appropriate for children. This episode is sponsored by our Patreon supporters, Chantel Oliver and Mandy, Rob, and Virginia Booty. If you want to help support our mission to put the women back into world history, visit our Patreon page and sign up today. Reader, my story ends with freedom, not in the usual way with marriage. I and my children are now free. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. I am going to tell you the story of a woman who escaped from enslavement in the American South, Hmm. moved to the North, became a leading abolitionist, working to free other enslaved people, including members of her own family, huh? and eventually became one of the most prominent free black activists and educators in the United States. And her name was... Harriet? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Harriet Tubman. She's too famous <laughs> for what's her name. Agreed. Oh. And we're not talking about Harriet Tubman. Oh. Today we are talking about Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs. I guess there's only room in the historical canon for one Harriet. We've talked about this many times on here, but the way that history gives one slot for each category of women, Mm -hmm. and this slot has been taken by Harriet Tubman. Who is awesome. Yes, there's no question that Harriet Tubman (laughs) deserves that slot. Yeah. And her story is incredible. And I'm glad that it's finally getting out there, the even more dramatic than you thought it was story. Yeah. But our Harriet, Harriet Jacobs, has a story that is every bit as dramatic and astonishing. Hmm. And she deserves to have it told. Cool. Especially since she is one of the very rare examples that we have of a formerly enslaved woman who tells her own story. In her own words. Ah. In her case, in her autobiography called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Oh, that Harriet Jacobs. You may have heard of this. Yes. (laughs) Some of our listeners may have encountered this book. It's Uh being taught more now in college um, and sometimes even in high school. And her story is sometimes being talked about. But for over 100 years, she was completely erased. Hmm. And it's time to bring her back. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of. So to learn more about Harriet Jacobs, I talked to Maria Wendell. I'm Maria Wendell, and I'm an assistant professor of English at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And most importantly... She was one of my favorite professors in graduate school. Ah. <laughs> Harriet Jacobs did not 
know that she was enslaved until she was six or seven years old. Harriet Jacobs is born in 1813, and she grows up actually not realizing that she is enslaved. So she grows up living with her grandmother and living with a mistress who is very kind to her, teaches her to read and to write. That all changes when she is 13 years old. Part of what's really crushing about that moment, when we go back and look at it historically as well, is to realize that it's distinctly possible that that woman may actually have intended to free Jacobs. And it is quite possible that the man who came to possess her altered that will in order to come to possess Jacobs. Dr. James Norcom witnessed a codicil when this woman died that stated that Harriet Jacobs specifically was willed to Dr. James Norcom's daughter. This codicil was not signed, but the word of two white men was enough that this codicil was taken as truthful and Harriet Jacobs was transferred to James Norcom's daughter, who is a young girl, so effectively (gasps) to James Norcom. Wow. She probably didn't even know this. She probably had no idea. It's not knowledge that necessarily would have been helpful to her at the time, but looking back at it now, it's something that's really painful to recognize. This situation is entirely different. James Norcom begins pursuing Harriet Jacobs sexually from the moment she enters his house. She's a child, and she is trying to fend off sexual advances from a man who has absolute control of her and her life and her body. Dr. Norcom begins to threaten to do things like send her to a cabin that he's going to build on one of the plantations where he can keep her to himself. This becomes for her a really defining experience, and this is what her narrative incidents in the life of a slave girl seeks to share with the reading public to try to reveal specifically what enslaved women experienced that enslaved men did not, and that means the sexual abuse that enslaved women underwent. This isn't to say that enslaved men didn't also at times suffer sexual abuse, and there are different forms of um, sexual abuse that both enslaved men and women underwent, being forced to sleep with um, men and women who enslaved them, or to quote-unquote breed with particular other slaves, which, you know, is a terrible way to have to say it, but... Mm. When Harriet Jacobs eventually falls in love with a free black man in the community, Norcom refuses to allow her to marry him. Mm. And he refuses to allow her to marry anyone. You know, which has its own issues because of the legal status of marriage for enslaved people in the 19th century. But on top of that, he had mocked her for even declaring feelings for someone, particularly a free black man. 
So, Harriet Jacobs makes a calculated decision, weighs all of her options very carefully, mm. and decides to enter into a consensual relationship with a white lawyer named Samuel Sawyer. Whoa. Jacobs attempts to make a calculation for how she can preserve herself from Norcom and his advances. And what she decides to do is essentially to offer herself instead to a wealthy white man as a mistress. One of the reasons that she does this is that she hopes that he will be able to purchase any children that they might have to purchase his own offspring to free them from slavery under Dr. Norcom. Because, of course, any children that she gives birth to, no matter who the father is, are enslaved yeah. and are the property of Dr. Norcom. Ugh. She's also hoping that if she becomes pregnant by another man, that Dr. Norcom will desist from pursuing her. She calculates out all of these options and decides that a relationship with a wealthy white man who eventually becomes a congressman is her best option for giving her children any chance of escape. Jacob is then also trying to navigate explaining this decision-making process to her readers and to do so while maintaining her position as someone who is the 19th century version of a proper woman, having to explain why she had sex outside of marriage, had children while she was unmarried, all of these different things that would basically totally destroy the idea of a 19th century ideal woman. She does so by explaining that she knew what was right and that slavery made it impossible to uphold those ideals, that slavery as an environment essentially makes that impossible. So she actually very directly says, reader, this is something that is difficult for you to imagine, I'm sure, but this is what slavery is. The system of slavery has made it impossible for her to do right. Yeah. She cannot do what is right. Mm -hmm. And this is the best possible alternative that she can see. So she says, but oh ye happy women whose purity has been sheltered from childhood, who have been free to choose the objects of your affection, whose homes are protected by law, do not judge the poor desolate slave girl too severely. If slavery had been abolished, I also could have married the man of my choice. I could have had a home shielded by the laws, and I should have been spared the painful task of confessing what I am now about to relate. But all my prospects had been blighted by slavery. I wanted to keep myself pure, and under the most adverse circumstances, I tried hard to preserve my self-respect. But I was struggling alone in the powerful grasp of the demon slavery, and I became reckless in my despair. And I think this is the most important part of what makes Jacob's story so valuable now, is that it gives us a way to understand and think about what agency looks like for women in this situation. Mm -hmm. Now this is really common in our narrative of what slavery looked like. But this book is 
really the first to address what being an enslaved woman was like. Mm. The sexual abuses that are amplified, Mm -hmm. especially white abolitionists sympathizing with this anti-slavery movement are reading men's slave narratives at Ah. this point. But no woman has been talking about this aspect. Right. Because in Victorian society, you don't talk about any of that, no matter what. Right. And so the fact that she walks this incredibly fine line of making it clear what she's talking about Mm -hmm. without horrifying and offending her readers so they put the book down. And she has to create a narrative of herself as the good woman who has been forced into bad situations Mm. because of this system. Now, in the narrative, Dr. James Norcom is not successful in his sexual pursuit of Harriet Jacobs. Mm. That she successfully fends him off. For years and years. For years and years and years. (laughs) Ah. And manages to maintain her purity in the rhetoric of the time until she makes this conscious decision to engage in this relationship with Samuel Sawyer. In incidents, she writes that, that Dr. Norcom stops pursuing her after this. This is one of those moments where it's difficult to know how accurate the narrative is being to life. It's possible that that's the case. It's also possible that this is a moment of sort of self-protection for Jacobs. It's still quite possible that Dr. Norcom would either continue to pursue or take vengeance on Jacobs. We have no way of knowing if that's Mm -hmm. true, of course. And it would be surprising if it were true. (laughs) It does seem surprising. It would be impossible for her to talk about it if it is not Mm -hmm. true. Because, you know, this is still a scenario in which you can't even mention that someone is pregnant. Yeah. Let alone (laughs) how a person became Uh pregnant. So this fine line that she has to walk of revealing enough to make it clear what she's trying to bring to people's attention. Mm. Like, you need to know what is happening. Mm -hmm. You need to understand the horrors of what enslavement looks like for women while zealously maintaining her own position as a righteous, virtuous woman. Because that's also critically important for what she's doing. She is writing this at a time where women are officially pedestalized and cherished and protected Mm -hmm. to make sure that womanhood is not ever defiled, Mm -hmm. none of that applies to enslaved women. And she is making the case for it should. Mm -hmm. If you really believe this, if you believe these Christian virtues, Mm -hmm. if you believe in chastity, marriage, all of those things are impossible under the system that you have built. And they're not just impossible (laughs) for me, a black woman, she's saying, they're impossible for you. They're impossible for anyone in a situation in which these kinds of things are being permitted and encouraged. It's it's a ridiculous balancing act that she's doing. She's like Hmm. juggling 
fire on a high wire above alligators. <laughs> and she she, and she pulls it off. She somehow is so successful. Wow. I mean, this book was so successful at what it was trying to do. <laughs> There's a line in her book that says, even after she is finally free, the dream of my life has not yet realized I do not sit with my children in a home of my own. I still long for a hearthstone of my own, however humble. I wish it for my children's sake far more than for my own. Huh. I mean, that is activating all of those codes of what women are, what women do, what they're Mm -hmm. for, and, and really driving home this point of, if you really do value this society, then why am I not allowed Mm. to have it? And so it works in the moment at making people confront the cognitive dissonance that they're having around women are sacred and special and must be protected. Black women are not. And she forces them to think these things through without ever violating Victorian morality codes of what you can say. Mm, Tricky. But I think it also really, really pushes us to confront that question of what are choices mm. in in a situation where your choices are so severely limited. So there's one way of thinking about things where the power balance is so uneven in slavery that you can argue that all sexual encounters that enslaved women have, and particularly that enslaved women have with white men are essentially rape because there is no way of equaling out that power balance. One of the ways of also then thinking about that is that that argument strips any idea of choice or agency from enslaved women, which is then difficult to try to sort of historically square. And the choice that she makes is a choice that she makes. And as she recognizes and acknowledges in incidents, it's not a choice that she would make under any other circumstances, but it is a choice. In these circumstances, this is the choice that Mm -hmm. I made. I love that, the reclaiming of her own ability and right to make Mm -hmm. decisions about her life, to do what she believes is best, even in extremely limited circumstances. Mm. So... Her plan kind of works. She has two children with Samuel Sawyer, Joseph and Louisa Matilda. Because she's enslaved, these children are enslaved and owned by Norcom, or technically by Norcom's daughter. But by 1835, Norcom is angry enough with her. He is threatening to send her children away to work on the plantation rather than in the house, which is much more dangerous, terrible situation for them. So she makes another desperate choice. Harriet Jacob hopes that if she leaves, he will leave her children alone and possibly even consent to sell them to their father, Samuel Sawyer. Like, runs away? Runs away. Wow. And where do enslaved people run? North? They run north. Mm-hmm. Harriet Jacobs does not have the resources to do that. Huh. So she stayed a little closer to home. Oh. She went to her grandmother's house, ah. where she will hide in a tiny garret space in the attic 
There's no windows. There's no insulation. This is North Carolina. It's unbelievably hot and humid in the summer. It still gets significantly cold yeah. in the winter. There are bugs that, as one who lived in North Carolina, the bugs almost drove me out of the state. <laughs> and I was living in a modern house with glass windows and air conditioning and etc. <laughs> but most importantly, this little enclosed hidden space is seven feet by nine. Okay. And the highest point of the roof is three feet tall. Wow. It slopes down on either side with just enough room for her to lie down on one side. If she rolls over, she bumps into the roof. Wow. This is a microscopic space. How long did she hide there? Seven years. What? Oh. She is hiding in this space for seven years. Are you kidding? Very occasionally, <gasps> when the family is very confident that it's safe, she might be able to come down and walk around a little bit in a larger space in the middle of the house and try to you know, stand up and stretch wow. out and move her body around. And that's one of the only reasons that she has some mobility left. She actually, for the rest of her life, suffers difficulty walking and things like that from her seven years in this garret space. Wow. Essentially in a box oh. for seven years. What did she do? Well, she would, she did carve out tiny peepholes in the wall where she could watch the street oh. and the outside world and where she can sometimes see her children playing in the street outside what? because she is across the street from Norcom's house. <laughs> For seven years, she is hiding what? in a garret across oh, the street, wow. essentially, from her oh, enslaver. Whoa, that blows my mind. I, I cannot imagine. One of the things that I do when I teach her narrative to try to actually get students to visually comprehend what this must have been like is I'll tape out on the floor of the classroom that seven by ten space and then it's basically about the height of a classroom table and I'll sit in that for the entire class and even just by the end of like the 50 minutes or the hour and 15 minutes I am so sore trying to get up but it's really hard to actually imagine what that must have been like. She refers to this in incidents as her loophole of retreat. And so again, you can kind of see from her language there how different that idea of escape from enslavement is than something like running north. And yet she fully understands the power of that idea because one of the things that she does to convince Dr. Norcom that she has fled north is she'll write letters to her grandmother as if she is in New York or somewhere like that and send them north with friends who will then postmark them from New York. Uh, no way! <gasps> to convince Norcom that she is uh, That gone. is wild. And he is constantly going up to New York City, sending agents to New York City, trying to find her. Uh, <laughs> oh. There's 
Another really remarkable thing about Harriet Jacobs' narrative and the historical record. I think this is the only slave narrative that we have where we also have the runaway ad that goes with it. You can see in comparison with all of the things that she talks about in her narrative, the way that Dr. Norcom frames her in his ad. It's from an 1835 newspaper from Norfolk. $100 reward will be given for the apprehension and delivery of my servant girl, Harriet. She is a light mulatto, 21 years of age, about 5 feet 4 inches high, of a thick and corpulent habit, having on her head a thick covering of black hair that curls naturally but which can be easily combed straight. She speaks easily and fluently, and has an agreeable carriage and address. Being a good seamstress, she has been accustomed to dress well, has a variety of very fine clothes made in the prevailing fashion, and will probably appear, if abroad, tricked out in gay and fashionable finery. As this girl has absconded from the plantation of my son without any known cause or provocation, it is probable that she designs to transport herself to the north. The above reward, with all reasonable charges, will be given for apprehending her or securing her in any prison or jail within the U states. All persons are hereby forewarned against harboring or entertaining her or being in any way instrumental in her escape under the most rigorous penalties of the law. James Norcom, Edenton, North Carolina, June 30th. Even these descriptions of her hair, of her skin, of her clothing, all of these are describing her appearance, but also reinforcing the idea of her appearance as more white, if we want to say it that way, is also in some way a negative for her, that that she's aspiring out of her station, that these things, which of course she has no control over, are a sign of her own deviancy or her own bad character. Hmm. It's really important to address the fact that when you look at Harriet Jacobs, we have a beautiful portrait of her, a photograph. Oh. She does not look the way that we expect an enslaved woman to look. Mm-hmm. She's described as a light mulatto. She is biracial. There are a lot of white people in her family tree. Mm. And yet, because of the legislation, which means that children follow the condition of their mother, it doesn't matter what your racial makeup actually is. What matters is if your mother was enslaved. Eventually, Norcom does sell her children to their father. Samuel Sawyer buys his children. He doesn't free his children. Ew! He allows them to live with their grandmother in the house where Harriet Jacobs is hiding in the attic. The children do not know she's there. What? What? So she can hear their voices and listen <gasps> to them downstairs. No way. That is so bonkers. The danger <sighs> is so high that absolutely no one wow. can know that she is here. He allows them to live with their grandmother for a while, but he does not free them. And eventually he sends Louisa, his daughter, to work as a slave. What? For family friends. No. Yes. Really? 
the complexity of these relationships is hard for us to understand. Very. Wow. But once her children are at least safe, if not free, Harriet Jacobs finally make her way north after seven years. Wow. By dressing as a sailor and being transported to a ship and finally does escape to New York. Where she gets a job as a nursemaid, a nanny, in the home of a man named Nathaniel Parker Willis. Willis is especially interesting because he's a very prominent literary figure, literary editor, especially in the 19th century. He's not as well known today, although he was very famous in the 19th century. The person that does have a lasting reputation is his sister, who we now know today as Fanny Fern. That was her pen name. Sarah Peyton Willis, who wrote a novel called Ruth Hall, as well as was a very, very popular, I'm going to say columnist. Jacobs becomes very close with both of Nathaniel Parker Willis's wives, but is very fearful that he will discover that she is a self-emancipated slave because she is afraid he will turn her in as part of the Fugitive Slave Act. At some point, Nathaniel Parker Willis's second wife, Cornelia Grinnell Willis, learns that Norcombe's daughter and her husband are in town trying to find Jacobs, and Cornelia gives Jacobs the baby that Jacobs is there to help care for and says, take the baby, go out of town so that if they come to the house, they won't be able to find you. Um, that's how much she cares about and cares for Jacobs, that she gives her the baby and, and sends her off, I think, to the seaside. Eventually, Cornelia Willis purchases Harriet Jacobs from Dr. Norcom and frees her. Wow! So she basically purchases Jacobs and then gives Jacobs her freedom. And Jacobs understands why this had to happen and is totally distraught. She already freed herself. Mm. And in this purchase, all of these people have turned her back into a slave. She is now being bought and sold. As she points out, now history will see a bill of sale. Mm. She is so upset that she has been bought and sold after all of the effort that she had made to free herself from slavery. She writes at the end of incidents about the sort of horror of a human being being bought and sold in New York in the mid-19th century as this sort of travesty. And even though she recognizes the necessity of it and, and she is grateful to Cornelia for having done this because it means that she no longer needs to leave the city at the drop of a hat. She's very angry that this had to happen. And it, it just further illustrates, you know, sort of the same problems of the white savior narrative oh. and that even when you are trying to do the best thing, we can't do the right thing. Mm. No one in this situation can do the right thing. 
It's a heartbreaking and really nuanced and complicated way of thinking through this problem now, let alone for the 19th century. It's an astonishing passage Mm. in this book. This system doesn't just compromise enslaved people's morals, as she's framing it. It compromises the morals of the entire nation. Yeah. So, after Jacobs is finally freed from the worry of being recaptured by the Norcoms, she begins what will become the real work and focus of her life. She starts running an abolitionist reading room in Rochester, New York. That was something that she had initially done with her brother, and he goes on to become an abolitionist lecturer, and he travels with people like Frederick Douglass doing the lecture circuit. She runs the reading room alone and works with some really high-level abolitionists in Rochester. She continues to correspond with and work with. That's also how she ends up getting put in touch with Lydia Maria Child, who sort of edits Incidents in Life of a Slave Girl. So now that she is officially, legally, no longer enslaved, Harriet Jacobs' friend, Amy Post, another name that people who study this time period will recognize very well, suggested that Jacob should write her life story. So the reason this is so rare, as I said, most of the slave narratives that we have are written by men. Mm -hmm. But even most of those, most famously Nat Turner, who led the largest and most successful slave rebellion in U.S. history, Mm -hmm. they weren't even really written by the person. They were dictated to or heavily edited by people with other agendas Mm -hmm. and so it's almost impossible to unpack what did Nat Turner actually say and what did the white pastor writing down his words insert Mm. and is any of this true here we have Harriet Jacobs actual words we know that the white woman who was involved in editing and helping publish this narrative was very clear that she did almost nothing huh that this is not a case of her rewriting or taking dictation. These are Harriet Jacobs' words. It does seem as though most of the narrative is actually Jacobs's. And this is something that's really important to recognize because of the fact that for a long time, people didn't think that Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl was a real slave narrative. Everyone at the time this book comes out knows that this is a factual slave narrative. Somehow, during the Civil War, this starts to be known as a work of fiction. Huh. That this is a novel by a white woman abolitionist. Huh. This is the part that is completely wild to me. For a hundred years, everyone believes that this is a work of fiction by a white woman. Huh. In the 20th century, people began to think that it was a a fictionalized slave narrative, that it was a novel. And they often thought that it had been authored by Lydia Maria Child, who was known for having written other novels, often related to sort of activist causes in the 19th century. It wasn't until about the 1980s that a scholar named Jean Fagan Yellen did the research to actually locate the kind of historical bases for incidents that people realized this is a true story. Part of that is because Jacobs had written under the pseudonym of Linda Brent, so in Incidents, her character is called Linda. 
Dr. Norcom is called Dr. Flint. Sawyer is called Treadwell. But if you look at their histories, if you look at the way that she maps where things are in the town, everything maps exactly. So when Jean Fegg and Yellen started to do this research, it very quickly became clear that incidents in the life of a slave girl was in fact a historical slave narrative and not at all a fictionalized story trying to sort of sensationalize the sexual aspects of slavery for sort of entertainment or salacious purposes, which was kind of what people had, had thought at one point. And this is a narrative written by this prominent abolitionist ah. figure, Harriet Jacobs, and that the truth is probably much, much bigger than even what is here mm. is really sobering mm. to think wow. about. So, normally the story would end here. She is free. But this is Harriet Jacobs, and she is not done. Ha! She is working in Alexandria and Washington, D.C., organizing food and shelter for refugees huh. from slavery and from the Civil War as more and more formerly enslaved people travel north as the Civil War goes on and as more and more people are emancipated or self-emancipated, they are flocking into Virginia, into Washington, D.C., into all of these areas with nowhere to go, no support network, generally the clothes on their backs. And she is hugely instrumental in organizing housing, food, work for all of these people. Yes, Harriet. She also realizes very quickly that her experience of learning to read and write are unusual and that so many of these formerly enslaved people mm -hmm. have had no education at all. And she starts teaching. She starts a school. Her daughter Louisa eventually joins her and they dedicate their lives to educating formerly enslaved people. Ah. Eventually, they raise enough funds to have a building, and we have a photo of that school oh, on cool. our website. It's an amazing photo. They're teaching children during the day. They're running classes for adults at night. Wow. They're dedicating so much time and energy to this project. Ah. But Harry Jacobs is also working on an activism front in so many other areas. She is raising funds and insisting on proper medical care for black people, raising huge amounts of money to assist with massive, devastating smallpox outbreaks where mm. all of these formerly enslaved people have almost no resources to combat these things and many doctors refuse to even treat them. And she is making sure that every bit of care she can possibly find and provide is available to these people. Wow. She is fighting for the rights of black soldiers who fought in the Civil War. Mm. And she's doing all of this with no one realizing who she is. They are not putting Harriet Jacobs, the activist, together with the author of Incident in the Life of a Slave Girl. Wow. The book ends with the lines that I quoted at the beginning of this episode, which for those who know 19th century literature is a perfect, brilliant inversion of a very classic 19th century trope for finishing up a novel, the most famous example being Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, mm. the last line of Jane Eyre being, reader, I married him. Uh -huh. Here, she is acknowledging what her readers are going to expect at the end of a story and how it differs. My story 
ends with freedom, not with marriage. Mm. She's again invoking that aspirational ideal withheld from enslaved women. And she's also destabilizing that ideal in the moment she's using it. It's such a fascinating way to end her story. I think it's especially poignant that as she wrote these words, the Civil War has not happened. The Emancipation Proclamation does not exist. So many people are still suffering what she suffered. And she hasn't been given a chance to accomplish any of the incredible work she is going to do after the Civil War. This is how Harriet Jacobs chose to end that part of her story. It has been painful to me in many ways to recall the dreary years I passed in bondage. I would gladly forget them if I could. Yet the retrospection is not altogether without solace. For with those gloomy recollections come tender memories of my good old grandmother, like light, fleecy clouds floating over a dark and troubled sea. Huge thanks to Dr. Maria Windell. If you want to learn more about Harriet Jacobs, see amazing photos of Jacobs, her children, some of the homes where she lived, visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com. There you'll also find links to books, resources, and much more. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Music for this episode was provided by Andy Reiner and John Souza, The River of Suck Podcast, I Think I Can Help You, Doug Maxwell, and the Library of Congress. We also want to extend a very warm welcome to our new Director of Curriculum for What's Her Name, Mary Quantz, and our intern, Isabella Martinez. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. <laughs>